Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist, try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Well, it's officially 2022. I didn't end up attending any kind of recovery meeting at all. In fact, what I ended up doing was the first portion of New Year's Eve, I went to a friend's house for his birthday, played some board games and hung out. And then after that, I went to a party with some friends to just sort of welcome in the new year. It was a pretty laid back party. It wasn't a whole lot of people there. There's a little bit of drinking, no, nothing really crazy. And these are my friends. You know, these are people that I've really grown to care about in the last few weeks. Some people I've known for a few years, but have just grown closer to. And honestly, I I didn't feel like I was missing anything at all. I felt happy and content and felt like I was bringing in the new year with with people I cared about. And that that seems to be all all that was really ever missing. Just that feeling of like belonging. And I found it in AA meetings and I'll find it there again, I'm sure. And I have found it in other situations in my past, but feeling that way last night, just feeling like, yeah, this is fine. This is great. I I am not miss I'm single and I'm not missing anything and I'm happy and I'm content. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know that that's still the case, you know? Uh, This morning, I finished a movie called Don't Look Up. I don't know if anybody's watched this movie. The the premise and the concept of the movie is pretty... It's it's a good movie. It kind of pokes fun at a lot of stuff, some political figures. It kind of pokes fun at um, our addiction to social media. It pokes fun at like our society's need to uh, focus on this fake positive at all times or to spend stories that, you know, some some sort of like generic drama over something more serious. You know, I know it gets it's supposed to be like a, a hot take about our ignorance of political like climate change and, and how that's affecting the world. And there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. But the main thing that I took from the movie one was just this idea that, like, what would I do if the world was going to come to end in six months? And then as as the movie progresses, like, I, I, without spoiling anything, if anybody's still on the fence about watching it, I do recommend it. This idea of there's all this shit that's super important, feeling, seeming. Uh, but at the end of the day, just being with loved ones is what what it all comes boiled down to. That's what's important. And I know that that's like a thing. Like, I don't need a movie to tell me that. I don't need like some existential, like, del- I don't need a comedy kind of drama to to remind me of that. I, we, I mean, we as a species should know this by now. Uh, but I don't think it's, uh, as a society, we really focus on it as much as we say we do. Across the board, I can't imagine anybody really fighting against this idea of like real value in life being found in the connection that you make with others, the true genuine connection you make with others. Our society just doesn't really fucking like push that narrative. It pushes a a way of selling that narrative. Um, And not to get too far into that, but more, more or less, it just, it was interesting to watch that movie right after having experienced those feelings. Like, just, you know, right after the the ball dropped, like just looking around the room of people that I was in feeling welcome and safe and like I belong there and really realizing that that's, that's it. That's all I want. I don't need like the fancy cars. I've never really cared about money or finances. That's yeah, that's going to hurt me later. I've talked about that, but that's that feeling I had yesterday is all I've ever wanted. And I had the opportunity to experience that and it felt good. Shortly after that, I found uh, a friend had really been struggling lately with uh with some depression and feeling a little isolated in his feelings he's struggling with this sort of this kind of societal pressure that's put on men it seems like this very old misogynistic view that men can't uh, aren't allowed to have feelings and it's weakness to talk about them i i've probably made it pretty clear that i could give a shit about that um i talk about my feelings all the time and i express that with others and they should do the same but while i might be comfortable doing that it's easy to forget that others aren't and that others feel like they need to suffer silently and put on that f- false face you know and i had no idea that this person was suffering in this way it, his life seems fairly charmed he's got a good job uh, that pays well he seems to enjoy he's got some big giant goofy you know dogs 
that he that he loves to spend time with that are obviously a very important part of his life. Uh, he's in good shape. He's a good looking guy. Comes from a pretty good family, it sounds like. Um, but we're you know we're suffering from the same thing. And I felt compelled to reach out to the guy. Um, so we're gonna go we're gonna go have some coffee tomorrow, and we're gonna talk about some stuff. We're gonna talk about just some general stuff. But I think I'm gonna try to make this a regular thing. I I think that while you know obviously I'm still interested in recovery and and sobriety, and that's gonna be the main focus of this. But as I expressed before, I am not like living in the shadow of my addiction any longer. I'm I'm not living in fear of alcohol. I'm not living in this constant like dread of that first drink. My efforts are progressing differently towards more of just general mental health and like being secure in having faced traumas and and how I respond to new new shit that goes on and knowing that I can I I still have I'm going to be reaching out to this person just like I would be reaching out to somebody who was struggling from alcohol addiction. This is a person that's struggling with a thing that I have experience with. I'm not going to try to be this person's therapist, but I'm going to try to connect with this person on a way, on a level that hopefully means that we have a regular interaction that creates a scenario where, as I've talked before, if I get to the place where I feel like I have nothing left and I want to kill myself again, this is a person that is on that list of people I can reach out to. And what I expressed was that I, I want to be that for him as well. And as a guy... I think that we can express to each other things in a safe place that maybe he hasn't ever felt like he can do before. You know, he's he's seeking help other places. He's seeking therapy and he's getting, you know, considering medication and stuff like that. But that fellowship that makes AA so strong, I think, can be, be applied in this way as well. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I think this feels really good. This feels right. I don't think I have to only focus on alcohol and people who might be struggling with alcohol. I think I'd be selling myself short if I did that. And I mean, I can't save the world, as my sponsor would remind me, my, my old one. But I can I can reach out to someone who's struggling with something I have experience with and make the time to go meet with them. Because again, this, this human connection thing is what it's all about. It's what it's all about. I can play all the fucking video games I want to play. I can I can build my cosplay stuff. I can do, do all these fun you know, things to kind of forget about the world, but real genuine human connection. You know, I need that to be my focus. That needs to be my focus. And I can still have my hobbies and I can still do these fun things, but I can't just sit at home anymore and just wait for fucking shit to happen. I can't live in the fear of alcohol addiction. I can't live in the fear that I am going to overextend or that someone's going to hurt my feelings. I can't sit in silence. This podcast can't be my only like way of reaching out to people, which is just sort of one-sided <laughs> in some cases, you know. And I know this isn't specifically recovery related what I'm talking about, but I think I think I think it is, honestly. You know, AA is what I've always talked about is the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I'm learning is that I can create and have created my own fellowship. What made AA's fellowship so important to me was the regular meeting. I am the type that I need a regular uh, regular meeting. And I'm learning that I can do that with other people who find value in me being around and I find value in being around them. And so that's where I'm at. I'm building my own fellowship. And so because of that, as I've said before, I'm already kind of like starting to feel a little less inclined to be as deeply involved with AA as I was. But I'm seeing now that AA it, it does not offer the only fellowship that will sustain me and I can build my own and it's just up to me to maintain it. So that's what I'm going to start doing. Now, that being said, interestingly enough, my TikToks that I started making led to me getting an interview for a job. I've talked a little bit about that. I got the job and I started uh, I started last Thursday, so a few days ago, and I already am digging every everything about it. Like the the boss wanted me to start on that day so that I could get paid for Friday, uh, New Year's Eve, and so that my insurance would start 30 days sooner, and so that my pay period wouldn't be janky. So that's that's a huge like that's all a whole bunch of wins right there, you know. So um, I'm pretty excited for that to be the case. Uh, you know, have a, have a boss that, that thinks like that, you know, that, that actually considers my situation. I mean, to him, it really wouldn't have mattered one way or another when I started, you know, it didn't affect him at all. Like that one day I just sat there doing videos. Nobody was in the office. So it's not like I was 
going to get trained. Uh, but he wanted to make sure that I was taken care of in some small way. And that is a lot of goodwill on, on his part that he's earned from me. That's how I am with my people when I'm in management. You, know, you take care of your people, they take care of you. So it sounds like the people I'll be working with are kind of the misfits. Um, there is another section of the, another department that's like that. That's kind of the misfitty, the, the IT folk. And I dig that too. That's, that's, it's my people. Um, there is somebody with my exact name. Uh, and I mean that literally the exact full first, middle and last name. They have a second middle name. That's the only difference. Uh, but they don't go by that in our system. So our emails are almost identical. <laughs> so immediately I was getting uh, stuff that was meant for him. So that'll be fun. I'm excited to see how that plays out. Uh, but I, I'm excited. This is like the, the new year is bringing about a new phase for me in a lot of ways. And I don't usually fall too heavily into like the new you, new year, new you bullshit. But um, this feels like a good starting point. Like I can just use the first of the year is like, okay, we have all these changes that are happening and we can move forward. And we can have this be a, a, a small measurement. I do believe in looking back on the last year and just sort of seeing how it went. I don't play much into like the successes or failures in, in that I do look at like, okay, well, this this didn't go quite well. This didn't go as planned. This went well. This did go as planned. But I don't look at the year as like, I have a year to get these things done or I didn't get this done in a timely fa fashion. That That's not quite what I, I was, you know, referencing with that, but... This is nice. This is a good, what a good start for, for the year, you know, and I'm not doing that to brag to folks. Not everybody's going to have a great start to the year. Fucking Betty White died New Year's Eve, you know, and that kind of put, put a stank on 2021 that was already kind of stanky. And I know other people may have maybe struggling going into this year. I'm not trying to brag. I'm not trying to like make it seem like I'm living this perfect life that others won't be. I, it's not my, that's not my uh, goal here. It's just not always been the case for me. I've had some rough years and now the good ones are starting to stack up. And it's not like a, a week here or there was good. The majority of the year was good. Even when there was some bad stuff, it was good. This isn't a common theme in my life. So I think it's important to talk about, especially when we're, you know, discussing recovery from alcohol and from traumas. So I hope, you know, folks aren't turned off by me kind of like gloating a bit here, but um, yeah. It's been a it's been a good start to a year that I think is going to have a lot of potential. Well, since today's the first, it looks like we're starting over in the Daily Stoic and we'll be starting on January 1st. Makes sense. Just said that control and choice. The chief task in life is simply this to identify and separate matters so that I can say clearly to myself which are externals not under my control and which have to do with the choices I actually control. Where then do I look for good and evil? Not to un uncontrollable externals, but within myself to the choices that are my own. Epictetus, Discourses 2.5.4-5. Uh, as a side note, I realize I've been saying that guy's name wrong forever. <laughs> so hopefully I said it right that time. The single most important practice in Stoic philosophy is differentiating between what we can change and what we can't. What we have influence over and what we do not. A flight is delayed because of weather. No amount of yelling at an airline representative will end a storm. No amount of wishing will make you taller or shorter or born in a different country. No matter how hard you try, you can't make someone like you. And on top of that, time spent hurling yourself at those immovable objects is time not spent on things we can change. The recovery community practices something called the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Addicts cannot change the abuse suffered in childhood. They cannot undo the choices that they make or hurt they have caused. But they can change the future through the power they have in the present moment. As Epictetus said, they can control the choices they make right now. The same is true for us today. If we could focus on making clear what parts of our day are within our control and what parts are not, we will not only be happier, we will have a distinct advantage over other people who fail to realize they are fighting an unwinnable battle. What a great way to start the year with, with something like this. I like this one a lot. When I was reading the first portion, the, the part that was directly from Epictetus, I was thinking that this sounded like kind of the serenity prayer. Not exactly. And while, yeah, I do... 
you know, I do understand that the serenity prayer, it's not biblical. It was written by a Christian. So there is kind of that, that sort of a, a bent on it, just simply removing God and saying, may I, or just asking of the world, the universe, the fucking atoms in between, whatever, to just internally asking for that serenity to accept things as they are and only work on or try to change things that are within yourself. You know, that's, I like this sort of saying, and this is when, when people ask me, you know, do atheists pray as an atheist? No, I don't, but I guess kind of like, I'm not, while the words uh, of the, the, the serenity statement, as we call it in the, you know, the agnostic atheist circles, though I say the words out loud, I say them to nobody in particular. Sometimes they're directed internally at me and sometimes you're just directed at the world. Putting those words out there, it just sort of helps allow me to, to feel them. That's a kind of an important thing for, for someone like me, especially where I can think a lot of this stuff all I want, but it, it makes it more real when I can speak them out loud. And yeah, this is important stuff. Getting stuck on the external is what I think drove me to the depths of my depression, my social anxiety, uh, and caused me the most harm even today. What do other people think about me? What do, what do, um, what do my peers actually regard me as? Yeah, right now, today, currently, the people that are in my, my circle, I trust what they say about me to my face. And I trust my feelings for them and vice versa. But I still get mad in traffic. I got mad today on my way to uh, on, on the way to my friends. Uh, we, we met up for tacos and someone was taking a little too long to get over in a lane that they weren't even supposed to be in, I guess. And, you know, I fucking hit the hit the gas and ran around them and made a big, you know, mental stink about it. And. But the, I wasn't even fucking late for anything. Like it wasn't really harming my day, but they didn't move fast enough. You know what I mean? So I had to squeal my tire a little bit and let them know. Looking looking at the last couple weeks for myself, you know, I see I see that there are there are still things, you know, that, that definitely affect me in some way. People saying certain things and feeling like I have to be the one to speak out about it. What I've said before about this and, and I'll kind of repeat now is while I do think it's important to really focus on not stressing about the things you can't change, especially things that are going to happen in the future, that doesn't mean not being prepared, not being ready. And that's where like focusing on the things you can change inside, the internal. Being, being prepared to me means just doing, continually doing the work. And I was telling my friend this. That doesn't mean that every single day I like I have this huge list of things I have to do. Sometimes I do a little bit more work. Sometimes it's it's a little less work. Sometimes all that work is, is is acknowledging that, hey, that was pretty stupid that you squealed your tires a little bit. Maybe don't do that. And then realizing that in the heat of the moment, I didn't call myself stupid. I called my actions stupid. That's progress. I'm still I'm still holding true to my rule of not calling myself stupid. That's good. That's work. That's doing the work that even as minor as that might seem. The other day I said something that upset someone else. I don't think the thing I said was wrong. The person was upset about something that was trivial, but they were upset about it. I said something that triggered them to be further upset about it. While the thing I said wasn't upsetting particularly, and we talked about it, and this is true, the space that we had created, so it was a friend said something in a chat that we share. This is a new friend. This is somebody I'm growing to, to know who's fairly sensitive and, and struggling with a lot of stuff that I've struggled with, especially when it comes to like personal relationships with people and overthinking what they think of you and that kind of stuff and being very sensitive to those things. And that person left the little chat we had and was going to not come out and join us for the festivities that night. And my first initial reaction, the thing that I cannot change was to full fuck it. You know, who, who cares about this guy? And then it was internally, it was, I did nothing wrong. And then it was nothing about my life changes if I just let this happen. I wasn't going to apologize. I wasn't going to reach out. I was just going to let this thing happen. That in some ways is just letting things I, well, I, I have no control over that. I don't know. I can't control this person's feelings. I can't change anything about the way that they're acting. Me and a different friend that we, we are very, we're all close right now. She knows him a lot better than me. And she, she said, yes, it seemed pretty ridiculous that he left that way. You didn't say anything wrong. And I was like all in my you know, all in my myself, like, yeah, of course, I did nothing wrong. And I'm fine. And I'm the better person, blah, blah, blah. And then I started realizing that, you know, I can't change how this person feels. 
but I can change my response to this. Like I can change how I'm, I'm going to act about this. This is a person I want to be friends with. He is a good person to my friend who I've known for a long time and I've, I'm growing closer to again. They're a part, it's a, a, a group of them at this point. So it, it's four of us, three of us, sometimes five of us. It's, you know, it's, it's an, it's a, a strong group. And these are, these are people that I can feel, uh, the potential to be close to for a long time. And when I started thinking that way and realizing, okay, if, if, if this is somebody I want to be friends with or somebody, I feel like we are growing towards being friends with, then I need, I need to say something. I can't just let this person think that he has done something to need to be like, I can't let it just exist that way without him knowing that, you know what, this isn't how friends act. You are my friend because maybe I haven't clarified this stuff. So that's what I did. I clarified, look, we're friends. This is hard. Sometimes we say shit that pisses each other off. Sometimes we do things that is irritating. Sometimes we don't agree. And sometimes we might even need to argue about shit. But while I stand by what I said, because again, I, I even clarified with somebody else. I don't think I said anything that was out of line. I wasn't rude or disrespectful. Well, I stand by that. And just for clarity, he was complaining because people were talking about Betty White dying, how he didn't, he wasn't affected by it. So it was irritating that everybody else was talking about it. And basically what I said was, you know, this is an odd thing to be upset about. Maybe you should take a break from social media because I don't think it's anything worth really arguing. Like, I mean, why are you upset that other people are expressing how they feel about this person dying? And that was what caused him to leave. So I wanted him to understand. I stood by what I said. It was an odd thing to be upset about. The solution would have been to take a break. What I apologized for was if I haven't made it clear, we are friends. And that means that if, if you're irritated, if we do something to upset you, then you can tell us that you can tell me that that you need to step back you don't need to leave the group you don't need to leave our friendship you don't need to no longer talk to me because we're not getting along or we don't agree on something we can have that conflict and survive that as mild as that might seem i understood that this could also be you know revolve around something bigger and so at first I was like, this dude's being super sensitive and this is obnoxious and I don't have time for this and I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to make that time. And that that felt a little like old thinking, but it also made me realize that this was something I could change. I can't convince him of anything he could. And I told him that, too. You, you could feel however you want to after this. I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. Take it or don't. And luckily he did. Luckily, he you know, he's like, hey, you know, I, I reacted a little brashly and. I understand what you were trying to do, and I, I sometimes just forget um, that I can just take a step back, that I don't have to, like, leave before others leave, like, you know, et cetera. We talked about it. And I guess that is more of an example of what, what they're staying in that, that stoic reading. I couldn't change how he was acting or feeling or what he was going to do, but I saw that I was going a darker path with it of who gives a shit when it wasn't really true and saw that I could change that course within myself and put the olive branch out in a way that wasn't compromising my belief or how I felt or who I was. I, cause again, I made it really clear. I do not take, I, I'm not apologizing for what I said. I'm not apologizing for how I reacted to him complaining about people talking about Betty White's death. I was apologizing for making him unaware of the fact that we were building a friendship and that that was that this is what that includes for me, that he can f feel certain things and say certain things. And it's a safe space. Sometimes I might tell him, well, that's kind of dumb to think that. But I expect him to do the same for me. And that's the back and forth and give and take that, that we will be building. So that was on that was on me. And I, and I was able to express that. And that was a thing I could change. That's what I could change. And at the end of the day, if he'd have just told me, you know what, fuck you, I don't I don't care, you know, piss off that I can't be affected by that. I can't allow myself to be affected by that. My emotions might exist around that. I might be sad or happy or whatever, but my day doesn't stop there. It couldn't. And I, you know, that's kind of how I've been living my day to day in this, hopefully in this as much as possible. I can't get stuck on things I can't change anymore. I can't afford that. Um, I can only, I can only work on the things I can change, which is whatever's within me. All right. So we are on step six and tradition six inside the 12 by 12. You know, just as a reminder, this book was written quite a while ago, fifties. 1952 looks like the first printing so written 51 or whatever and i just you know some of the some of the language of this book is is just outdated some of the thoughts are just outdated but at the same time like the core concepts are still kind of being used you know the they, they landed on some pretty significant 
uh, processes, I guess I would be the best way and programming some people use. I know that that turns a lot of people off using the word programming, but let's be reasonable when we consider that most of what we do to ourselves is a form of programming. It just sounds bad, I guess, like it's got a negative connotation. But if you've ever changed your diet, sleeping habits, anytime you have activated a habit within yourself, you're reprogramming in your programming. Like if you've been raised a certain way and you don't act that way, whatever negative way it was or even positive and you act a different way, that's programming. So, I mean, you know, get over that, I guess, if that's a sticking point. Uh, but that's what this is. You know, it's a set way of life. When I was a teenager, man, the idea that a book would tell me how to live was fucking almost abusive language. Like I would get so mad. And had I really just considered what that actually meant, um, I probably would have ended up leading a completely different life. But while I don't agree with the concept anymore that there is only one set program, I do agree with the ideas behind, uh, you know, re rearranging some stuff that maybe is a recurring habit or trait or whatever. And I agree that almost everything can be can be rearranged through through a certain kind of programming. So these steps, while maybe I don't necessarily follow them 100% or agree that this is a, a path that I need to be on in this way, that this is only a small portion of a much bigger program that I've you know now written for myself and that's always changing, I do still think that in a lot of ways this is a healthy beginning place for people. I just don't think it should be sold as the destination anymore or sold with the idea that everything has to be taken as is. While I am reading this as is, that you know that process is twofold. I want people to to have all the words as they are being used currently, and to be able to make up their own mind about it. While I'm kind of you know riffing on on this in my own way, it's based on exactly as the words are written. So with that being said, let's get into it. Step six: We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Now, obviously, God isn't removing anything for me, but this step for me, as it's written. Without, I mean, as it's interpreted by me, is I start to reconsider my attachments to things that I felt like or feel like are protecting me. Re readjusting how I view some of those things to see if they can be unseated. My, you know, go-to was to lie to people and to bend the truth and to manipulate situations and to deflect and become defensive and it'd be codependent. And, you know, these traits can all be boiled down to some fear of some kind. And these defects of character, these protective layers, this step is asking me to be ready. That's it. That's all the action. I'm entirely ready to no longer need all these layers. And the reason why a lot of these steps are, are done later in sobriety as well as early sobriety for a lot of people is that there's only so much of this that can get done at the first of sobriety and recovery. It takes a while. The layers of these in step six, my protective layers, they're still being removed. I'm an onion. There's just layer after layer after layer. And it's never ending sometimes it seems like. But um, every time I I come across a new one, you know, I'm ready for it to be gone. I don't, I'm not sure what that action is going to look like. We haven't even got there yet in this book. But that's all this is asking me. What I've discovered through step four and step five that is holding me back from having a productive and healthy life because of protecting a, a negative and toxic one. Am I ready to be done with that and to, to cast those layers off and move forward? Am I ready? That's all it's, that's all it's saying. This is a step that separates the men from the boys. Blah. So declares a well-loved clergyman, clergyman, excuse me, who happens to be one of AA's greatest friends. He goes on to explain that any person capable of enough willingness and honesty to try repeatedly step six on all its faults without any reservations whatever has indeed come a long way spiritually and is therefore entitled to be called a man who is sincerely trying to grow in the image and likeness of his own creator. Because again, this was written in 1950-something and they forget women are going to read this book too. Of course, the often disputed question of whether God can and will under certain conditions remove defects of character will be answered with a prompt affirmative by most uh, AA members. To him, this proposition will be no theory at all. It will be just about the largest fact in his life. 
he will usually offer his proof in a statement like this. Sure, I was beaten, absolutely licked. My own willpower just wouldn't work on alcohol. Change of scene, the best efforts of family, friends, doctors, and clergymen got no place with my alcoholism. I simply couldn't stop drinking, and no human being could seem to do the job for me. But when I became willing to clean house and then asked a higher power, God as I understood him, to give me release, my obsession to drink vanished. It was lifted right out of me. That might be true for some people. I, I found myself not really being um, stuck in the obsession of drink when I finally came you know, around to wanting to quit. Uh, but I can see, you know, this might be the step that it does become sort of released for people. I don't know. Wasn't my experience. In AA meetings all over the world, statements just like this are heard daily. It is plain for everybody to see that each sober AA member has been granted a release from this very obstinate and potentially fatal obsession. So in a very complete and literal way, all AAs have become entirely ready to have God remove the mania for alcohol from their lives. And God has proceeded to do exactly that. So those of us who don't believe in God, what does that look like? Again, what it looks like for me is that I'm just, I'm, I'm ready to lose my attachment to those things. I'm ready to change my attachment style around certain aspects of me that I use to protect the toxicity that was within me. The only way for that to take root is for me to change that toxicity, which is the things that I can change, and to realize that those things within me have nothing to do with anything outside of me. Being able to work through that, work through those traumas and those inner, you know, bullshit makes this step possible. No God, no Jesus, no fucking Messiah, no one of, none of that stuff is required. This is an internal process, and it's a fairly simple to straightforward one. Not easy but simple and straightforward. Having been granted a perfect release from alcoholism, why then shouldn't we be able to achieve by the same means a perfect release from every other difficulty or defect? This is a riddle of our existence, the full answer to which may be only in the mind of God. Nevertheless, at least a part of the answer to it is apparent to us. When men and women pour so much alcohol into themselves that they destroy their lives, they commit a most unnatural act. Defying their instinctive desire for self-preservation, they seem bent upon self-destruction. They work against their own deepest instinct. As they are humbled by the terrific beating administered by alcohol, the grace of God can enter them and expel their obsession. Fucking evidently not before. <laughs> only, only then. Very small window that God can enter. Uh, here their powerful instinct to live can cooperate fully with their creator's desire to give them new life. For nature and God alike abhor suicide. I mean, does nature? I'm not saying that, you know, it was a great idea of mine to try to kill myself, but there's plenty of times where I think in nature, animals do do that. I mean, existentially, animals don't really understand uh, life enough to be saddened to the point of death. Some creatures do. There are there are animals that when their partner dies, they, they will starve themselves or create a situation in which they'll die, which is a form of suicide. Absolutely. This idea that nature is against it. I think if more animals were aware of their own existence, they'd fucking kill themselves without hesitation. Because they would understand that their, you know, their lives are fucking plant food anyways. It's not like they're gonna be around much longer than what they are. I don't know. I uh I don't get that comment. I guess God does, right? Gives us the opportunities to kill ourselves, but gets mad at us for doing it, uh, if that's the case. But I think when people talk like this, it's out of fear. You can't make suicide acceptable or people would suicide, right? Only in countries where uh, that seems to be the case, it's not like people just suddenly regularly off themselves. I mean, Sweden? Or no, maybe it's not Sweden. I'm going to look this up before I talk about it more. It looks like I got it right. So, uh, Sweden is considering a suicide capsule, which would uh, provide a way for people to pay to kill themselves. Basically, you just pop on over there and if that's what you want to do then you handle it and 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 the machine does the work and that's it now i i don't know how healthy it would be to have that be available without like some sort of psychiatric check-in ahead of time but i think people are scared that this being made available will cause more people to kill themselves but i don't think that's really how it works right i mean it wasn't like the reason i never tried before was because it wasn't available and it and it's not like i mean yeah it probably would have been successful if i were feeling the way that i was and i went in and tried to use that that machine uh, on my attempt three years ago, but 
I don't think they would have let me in blasted ass drunk the way I was. I don't know. Maybe maybe nature doesn't condone suicide. Maybe maybe making it accessible and making it socially acceptable would would do more harm. But if, you know, Sweden is a nation of mostly atheists, right? So it's not like God's stopping them. And I get the whole God being against suicide thing as a deterrent. I, I would, you know, if you try to tell people that there's a heaven um, where everything's wonderful and peachy and, and, and amazing, you got to also tell them that you can't get there early <laughs> on your own. You got to let shit just happen. So, yeah, uh, enough talking about suicide. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but most of our other difficulties don't fall under such a category at all. Every normal person wants, for example, to eat, to reproduce, to be somebody in the society of his fellows. I just I get tired of them using that normal person. Uh, and he wishes to be reasonably safe and secure as he tries to attain these things. Indeed, God made him that way. He did not design man to destroy himself by alcohol, but he did give man instincts to help him stay alive. Are we moving towards the idea that that um, God is not omnipotent at the moment? Like, yeah, of course he designed man to destroy himself by these means, or he wouldn't be able to be destroyed by them uh, in such spectacular fashions. It is nowhere evident, at least in this life, that our creator expects us fully to eliminate our instinctual drives. So far as we know, it is nowhere on the record that God has completely removed from any be human being all his natural drives. Since most of us are born with an abundance of natural desires, it isn't strange that we often let these far exceed their intended purpose. When they drive us blindly, or we willfully demand that they supply us with more satisfactions or pleasures than are possible or due us, that is the point at which we depart from the degree of perfection that God wishes for us here on earth. That is the measure of our character defects, or if you will, the wish of our sins. I, okay, so yeah, whatever. That's clearly not what I would think, but... There is kind of like like the um, baseline of, of things we, we you know we honestly need as as people as uh, beings of uh, self reliance and one of those isn't indulgence usually isn't in line with with any of that however you want to look at any of our societies before we became fucking obsessed with cell phones and whatever else every path of society every path that our societies our our cultures all of our worlds have taken. You can see kind of a common thread. Anytime there's an overindulgence of any of the things, the natural things, I guess, that our our beings would need, our species would need, uh, has resulted in some form of calamity. Like it never goes well. An abundance of anything never goes well. So we, I think, can agree on that. Maybe with different, you know, just obviously different wording. If we ask, God will certainly forgive our derelictions. But we have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but in no case, could you imagine that? Could you imagine being the absolute most powerful, all-seeing thing in, in all the universes? And you have all these creations down there, and they're like suffering. They're just fucked up. And you're like, well, I'd like to help you, but I just don't like the way you asked. So you're on your own, buddy. I, I, I'm sorry. Maybe next time ask better, you know? And then maybe I'll do something. Maybe I won't. Ah, so weird. That is something we are supposed to be willing to work toward ourselves. He asks only that we try as best we know how to make progress in the building of character. No, no, you've made it clear that that is not what he asks at all. He doesn't always reward people that do just that or simply that, right? Sometimes those people are punished too. So step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Is AA's way of stating that best possible attitude one can take in order to make a beginning on this lifetime path a job. This does not mean that we expect all our de character defects to be lifted out of us as the drive to drink was. A few of them may be, but with most of them we shall have to be content with patient improvement. The key words entirely ready underline the fact that we want to aim at the very best we know or can learn. So I agree with that. Yeah, like we 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 can't go into this expecting that we're just fucking call, oh, cured of all things within a few months of doing this and that there's no more work afterwards. All the work's done. It's not really it's not really how it will work. Like there's just going to be more stuff. Those those layers will be further peeled back. How many of us have this degree of readiness? In an absolute sense, practically nobody has it. The best we can do with all the honesty that we can summon is to try to have it. Even then, the best of us will discover to our dismay that there is always a sticking point, a point at which we say, no, I can't give this up yet. 
For me, it's my sarcasm and my sense of humor. I don't think I'll ever give up fully my sense of humor. I am working on not being so abrasive, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, this is just my my humor, while absolutely a defense mechanism, um, is one of the things that I I feel that with effort uh, will just continue to main, continue to be something that um, is an important aspect of who I am. And giving that up would be ridiculous. And we shall often tread on even more dangerous ground when we cry. This I will never give up. Such is the power of our instincts to overreach themselves. No matter how far we have progressed, desires will always be found which oppose the grace of God. Whatever. I Yeah, I'm not ever giving up my sense of humor. Sorry. Yes, I understand that at points it's going to come with people being upset with me and me having to like clean up some messes. But you know what? Such is life, man. Like, I just can't. It, it's never once made me feel like, well, I like cracking jokes. I guess I'll drink. It's not really like it's not created the kind of damage and havoc and wreckage that lying has, manipulating has. I just make constant dad jokes, basically. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, sometimes it probably annoys people, but you know, whatever. Some who feel they have done well may dispute this, so let's try to think it through a little further. Practically, everybody wishes to be rid of his most glaring and destructive handicaps. No one wants to be so proud that he is scorned as a braggart, nor so gritty that he is labeled a thief. No one wants to be angry enough to murder, lustful enough to rape, gluttonous enough to ruin his health. No one wants to be agonized by the chronic pain of envy or to be paid... Uh, paralyzed by sloth. Of course, most human beings don't suffer these defects at these rock-bottom levels. We who have escaped these extremes are apt to congratulate ourselves. Yet can we? After all, hasn't it been self-interest, pure and simple, that has enabled most of us to escape? Not much spiritual effort is involved in avoiding excesses, which will bring us punishment anyway. But when we face up to the less violent aspects of these very same defects, then where do we stand? What we must recognize now is that we exult in some of our defects. We really love them. Who, for example, doesn't like to feel just a little superior to the next fellow, or even quite a lot superior? Isn't it true that we like to like greed masquerade as ambition? To think of liking lust seems impossible. But how many men and women speak love with their lips and believe what they say so that they can hide lust in a dark corner of their mind? And even while staying within conventional bounds, many people have to admit that their imaginary sex excursions are apt to be all dressed up as dreams of romance. That one was something I definitely struggled with in my recovery very much until recently. And I know I'm not struggling with it anymore because I had, I've had opportunities to have sex there are, there are women that are obviously interested in me in that way, and I'm just not interested. I just had a breakup three months ago. I'm trying to heal from that and trying to give that space and give that respect, and I'm just not interested in sleeping with somebody else. And fuck if that's not real growth, because that was not how I was before, even in recovery. Like I have always struggled with that. I found a lot of worth in my, in my sexualness, uh, and I do not find that today. I can live without it for a while. And hopefully, you know, when I'm ready to date, that's something I don't struggle with. Uh, but yeah, like driven by lust was a, was a huge problem um, for me. Self-righteous anger also can be very enjoyable. In a perverse way, we can actually take satisfaction from the fact that many people annoy us for it brings a comfortable feeling of superiority. Gossip barred with our anger, a polite form of murder by character assassination, has satisfactions for us too. Here, we are not trying to help those we criticize. We are trying to proclaim our own righteousness. I do also tend to fucking play into some gossip, man. I like to hear about other people's shit. I like to like put my own little commentary on there because, you know, I think I know everything sometimes. And yeah, that's not fucking healthy at all. It's still something that happens. And I'm trying I'm trying to work on that as well. Like, that's, that's something I definitely need to work on. If I do feel like I need to chime in on something, it, it needs... I feel it needs to be on like a matter of importance amongst friends. Like when I was talking about how my friend um, was upset and left the group, me reaching out to our mutual friend and seeing like checking in, like, here's what happened. Did this go down the way that I think it did? And then us talking about that and then talking a little bit about like how he reacts to things that that to me, I think was beneficial because then I was able and prepared to approach the situation in a way that was that was from a good place. And I didn't approach it just from my own observation of something that maybe I'm misunderstanding. That's not gossip. Now, me reaching out to my friend and being like, man, that guy's an asshole. What a fucking weirdo. Uh, you know, what the hell? And then like checking in and trying to find out more information without without even planning on using that in a way that uh, helps the situation, helps us, you know, like that would be gossip. Just, just finding out the, the tea. 
uh, I guess is what the call the kids are calling it nowadays. I try to do that less. I'm not as successful with that as I, I should be. So that's still something I'm working on. When gluttony is less than ruinous, we have a milder word for that too. We call it taking our comfort. We live in a world riddled with envy. To a greater or less degree, everybody is infected with it. From this defect, we must surely get a warped yet def uh, def definite satisfaction. Else, why would we consume such great amounts of time wishing for what we have not, rather than working for it, or angrily looking for attributes we shall never have, instead of adjusting to the fact and accepting it? Weird sense. And how often we work hard with no better motive than to be secure and slothful later on. Only we call that retiring. Yeah. What? Yeah. Of course. What are they trying to say? Like, we should we not be doing that? No, I agree. We shouldn't actually have to be working towards retirement. We should be able to enjoy life now. Consider, too, our talents for procrastination, which is really sloth in five syllables. <laughs> Nearly anyone could submit a good list of such defects as these. And a few of us would uh, seriously think of giving them up at least until they cause us excessive misery. Yeah, that's that old school, like, uh, industrial thinking. Well, if you don't want to work till you're dead, then you're lazy, slothful. Some people, of course, may conclude that they are indeed ready to have all such defects taken from them. But even these people, if they construct a list of still milder, milder defects, will be obliged to admit that they prefer to hang on to some of them. I, I, I am. I am one of those people, and I think that that's reasonable. Therefore, it seems plain that few of us can quickly or easily become ready to aim at spiritual moral perfection. I don't want perfection. We want to settle for only as much perfection as will get us by in life, according, of course, to our various and sundry ideas of what will get us by. So the difference between the boys and the men is the difference between striving for a self-determined objective and for the perfect objective, which is of God. <sighs> Progress over perfection, right? But also, I guess, striving for a perfection that's unobtainable. I don't really believe in that at all. I think we are flawed as people and will always be flawed. As long as we're working towards something, then, you know... That kind of determines if we're good or not. As long as we're working towards something of value. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything major. This sort of gives the the sense that if you're only stri if you're striving for something that's simple and modest, um, then you're not aiming for perfection. You're doing it wrong or something like that. I don't really think that's that's a healthy way of going about this. Many will at once ask, how can we accept the entire implication of step six? Why? That is perfection. This sounds like a hard question, but practically speaking, it isn't. Only step one, where we made the 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol, can be practiced with absolute perfection. The remaining 11 steps state perfect ideals. They are goals towards which we look and the measuring sticks by which we estimate our growth. Progress, excuse me. Seen in this light, step six is still difficult, but not at all impossible. The only urgent thing is that we make a beginning and keep trying. Okay, good. They kind of walked back the whole perfection thing. And I do, I do kind of agree. I mean... Uh, my friend is a Sufi. Well, I say friend. I haven't really talked to him in a long time. Um, he was a Sufi and he tried to explain to me the ideal of like some Alistair Crowley thing called AIM. And I don't know, he mixed up a bunch of philosophies when he was trying to explain it. But what I got out of it was this this idea of AIM is is an obtain, unobtainable thing. I mean, usually it's some sort of ethereal, almost ethereal kind of concept. Like if practiced properly um you would look at basically measure everything up against this aim like drinking alcohol even he tried to explain this to me too if within my aim i have this course set that is of to be you know of sound body and mind or to be of uh help to my community or whatever then i look at alcohol abuse and i measure that up against it if it doesn't fit it doesn't serve me then i have to leave it as i have to leave it aside i have to leave it alone same with like eating certain foods or uh, staying up at until certain times or, you know, everything gets sort of like measured up against this, this great, almost unobtainable, impossible to sort of see aim. And I, in that way, I can kind of see like the idea of perfection being used in the same way. If we would gain any real advantage in the use of this step on problems other than alcohol, we shall need to make a brand new venture into open-mindedness. We shall need to raise our eyes toward perfection and be ready to walk in that direction. It will seldom matter how haltingly we walk. The only question we, we be, will be, are we ready? Looking again at these defects, we are still unwilling to give up. We ought to erase the hard and fast lines that we have drawn. Perhaps we shall be obliged in some cases still to say, 
This I cannot give up yet, but we should not say to ourselves, this I will never give up. Let's dispose of what appears to be a hazardous open end we have left. It is suggested that we ought to become entirely willing to aim toward perfection. We note that some delay might be pardoned. That word, in the mind of a rationalizing alcoholic, could certainly be given a long-term meaning. He could say, how very easy. Sure, I'll head towards perfection, but I'm certainly not going to hurry any. Maybe I can postpone dealing with some of my problems indefinitely. Of course, this won't do. Such a bluffing of oneself will have to go the way of many other pleasant rationalization. At the very least, we shall have to come to grips with some of our worst character defects and take action toward their removal as quickly as we can. The moment we say, no, never, our minds close against the grace of God. Delay is dangerous and rebellion may be fatal. This is the exact point at which we abandon limited objectives and mer uh, move towards God will, God's will for us. Ugh. Yeah, so, nope. I will never give up my sense of humor. Come for me. <laughs> I don't care. Like, there's, there's character defects, quote-unquote, uh, that people are going to have that they don't want to give up, and it is not going to destroy their lives or cause them harm or remove their possibilities of perfection or you know fucking god's not going to abandon them or whatever the weird shit it is that that was trying to say what needs to happen is if we're going to use the aim analogy you don't want to drink anymore maybe that's how you start this journey you start measuring things up like what was aiding you in drinking what was helping you maintain alcoholism then as you progress and you start moving away from the obsession of an alcoholic thinking and, and if you move away from living inside the shadow of alcoholism and you realize there's so much more to life than living in that shadow, you start looking at, okay, I want to be a good partner. I want to, I want to be a good member of my community. Well, well now here's, I want to be a good friend. Here's, now we have this new measurement. We have these things that we can hold up against that. If it doesn't serve that purpose, then we have to get rid of them. But if it doesn't harm that purpose, then we don't have to get rid of them. Not all of it needs to be discarded. Even if it is a defect of character. Yes, my sense of humor at times can be a fucking defect of character. I make jokes at inappropriate times. I sometimes hurt people's feelings. And, you know, I could be a pain in the ass. But 90% of the time, I'm described as funny and hilarious. And people enjoy having me around because I have a quirky way of looking at things. And I brighten up their mood. Now, there was a time where my my joking pushed things to the point to where people did not want me. They, they didn't mind having me around, but they never took me any kind of serious. That's changed. But yeah, there's aspects of it that are still defects. And I just, I'm not going to fucking get rid of them say that in an AA meeting and see how that goes. But the truth of the matter is, is that at no point has this gotten in the way of, of my emotional sobriety or my mental health. I make fucking obscure and, and odd jokes about my, my suicide regularly. I do it when I share in meetings. I mean, saying something like I tried to kill myself, but obviously it didn't take. To me, it's funny, but I know that it rubs people the wrong way. Again, that would make it kind of a defect character. I just don't care. So... I'm sorry, AA, Bill Wilson, whatever, can't add that one. Tradition six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Now, I don't know if how, how much this is actually going to go into it, but this, this step is, or this tradition is in, in direct relation to Bill almost basically selling AA to, uh, if I remember right, the Rockefellers, who were going to turn it into like kind of a... a pyramid scheme a financial pyramid scheme yes i know some people are gonna well it is already kind of a financial yeah it's a really shitty one that doesn't make a lot of money uh if that's the case whatever maybe it is right i can tell you right now that when i was in aa i never had anybody try to sell me a book i had people offer me ones for free i had meetings cover the cost of the book i've had them i've had uh, a book sold to me at cost uh it seems like a really fucking ridiculous business model to make a shit ton of money off of what I do remember hearing about, and I've, you know, this is more one of those, I've read the article and forgot about the article at the same time. Um, what I read, remember reading about was, and have read and, you know, talked about in these, these episodes, Bill had opportunities to turn this into basically a nine to five kind of a job that would have made him financially sound for the rest of his life. Uh, and while one of those was almost one he went through with, and it may have fallen through on the other side. It wasn't Bill who backed off. It was the other side. There's other instances where people in the groups were like, no, we don't want to do this. And as a result of that, that's where a lot of these traditions have come from was, you know what? We we don't want that to happen to this group anymore. This is this is our, our thing and we need to protect it. And this is how we're going to protect it. 
The moment we saw that we had an answer for alcoholism, it was reasonable, or so it seemed at the time, for us to feel that we might have the answer to a lot of other things. The AA groups, many thought, could go into business, might finance any enterprise whatever in the total of, uh, field of alcoholism. In fact, we felt duty-bound to throw the whole weight of AA name behind any meritorious cause. Meritorious. Oh, meritorious cause. So... This does remind me, though, that there are, and I encourage people to stay far the fuck away from a lot of these gurus that are online that offer little snippets of their program for free via social media, but have something bigger that they're trying to sell. They're basically taking what they've learned in rehab and, and uh, you know, whatever free or, or even purchased recovery materials, books that they've read, and then repackaging it into a different kind of a, a deal and then selling it to people. And those, those people can fuck right off, quite honestly. If I go to your website and it has a, a big crazy value crossed off with a red line and then this like bite-sized value underneath it to sell the thing that's supposed to save my fucking life, uh, you, can, you can fuck off. Peace out. Fucking, you know. That's why I've never really liked rehabs. I get that. There's people that have used rehabs and have gotten a lot of success from them. But how much it costs to go to a rehab is absolutely bonkers for what's offered these gurus are worse 100 i get people having to make some kind of a living and wanting to dedicate their whole life to a thing and therefore feeling that they should be compensated in some way but i also can fucking smell a rat and i can smell when someone's scamming other people and i can smell when someone's just offering what could be readily available and found online but it's their personality you know, these, these master mentors, fuck out of here. What an immoral piece of shit. That's how I feel. about it. You can fucking tell anybody that you think that might apply to. They can come talk to me. We'll have a conversation about that. Here are some of the things we dreamed. Hospitals didn't like alcoholics. So we thought we'd build a hospital chain of our own. People needed to be told that alcohol, told what alcoholism was. So we'd educate the public, even rewrite school and medical textbooks. We'd gather up derelicts from skid rows, sort out those who could get well, and make it possible for the rest to earn their livelihood in a kind of quarantine confinement. Maybe these places would make large sums of money to carry on our other good works. We seriously thought of rewriting the laws of the land and having it declared that alcoholics are sick people. No more would they be jailed. Judges would parole them in our custody. We'd spill AA into the dark regions of dope addiction and criminality. We'd form groups of depressive and paranoid folks. The deeper the neurosis, the better we'd like it. It stood to reason that if alcoholism could be licked, so could any problem. It occurred to us that we could take what we had into the uh, factories and cause laborers and capitalists to love each other. Our uncompromising honesty might soon clean up politics. With one arm around the shoulder of religion and the other around the shoulder of medicine, we'd resolve their differences. Having learned to live so happily, we'd show everybody else how. Why we thought our Society of Alcoholics Anonymous might prove to be the spearhead of a new spiritual advance. We might transform the world. I love it. It's the most alcoholic thing in this entire book. Yes, we of AA did dream those dreams. How natural that was, since most alcoholics are bankrupt idealists. Nearly every one of us had wished to do great good, perform great deeds, and embody great ideals. Eh, I think a lot of you also just wanted to get rich, man. Whether it was great or good or whatever. Just, you know, a lot of bankers and stock market folk back in the day getting getting this, you know, brand of recovery. Uh, they probably just wanted to recoup their losses. It's just fine. I ain't even mad. We are all perfectionists who, failing perfection, have gone to the other extreme and settled for the bottle and the blackout. Providence through AA had brought us within reach of our highest expectations, so why shouldn't we share our way of life with everyone? Whereupon we tried AA hospitals, they all bogged down because you cannot put an AA group into business. Too many busybody cooks spoil the broth. AA groups had their uh, fling at education, and when they began to publicly whoop up the merits of this or that brand, people became confused. Did AA fix drunks, or was it an educational project? Was AA spiritual, or was it medical? Was it a reform movement? In consternation, we saw ourselves getting married to all kinds of enterprises, some good and some not so good. Watching alcoholics committed willy-nilly to prisons or asylums, we began to, to cry, there ought to be a law. AAs commenced to thump tables in legislative committee rooms and agitated for legal reform. That made good newspaper copy, but little else. We saw we'd soon be mired in politics. Even inside AA, we found it imperative to remove the AA name from clubs and 12-step houses. 
These adventures implanted a deep-rooted conviction that in no circumstances could we endorse any related enterprise, no matter how good. We of Alcoholics Anonymous could not be all things to all men, nor should we try. See, this is the kind of stuff, I'm, I'm in a Facebook group where all they do is they just talk about how culty AA is and... You know, one of the guys in there fucking pops off, man. He goes, he goes full on just serious tinfoil hack conspiracy mode on this stuff. And, and then I read this and like, I've been in meetings and I know the program fairly well. And, and I'm like, really, dude, they had their chance to do that, to go full cult. They had their chance to go full for profit. And while some of those may have failed because the other people pulled out or whatever, they, they made sure that it wasn't something that could happen. That's why it's in churches and cheap fucking basements and stuff. Like, it's so weird to be able to see that and then also feel like, oh, it's a cult taking over the world. Uh, years ago, this practice of no endorsement was put to a vital test. Some of the great distilling companies proposed to go into the field of alcohol education. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> just like just like uh, smoking companies, tobacco companies were profiting off of the uh, uh, smoking cessation movement. It would be a good thing, they believed, for the liquor trade to show a sense of public responsibility. They wanted to say that liquor should be enjoyed, not misused. Hard drinkers ought to slow down, and problem drinkers, alcoholics, should not drink at all. Uh, then put, you know, alcoholics in your ads. Uh, they're liquor folks, so that's a good start. In one of their trade associations, the question arose of just how this campaign should be handled. Of course, they would use the resources of radio, press, and films to make their point. But what kind of person should head the job? They immediately thought of Alcoholics Anonymous. If they could find a good public relations man in our ranks, why wouldn't he be ideal? He'd certainly know the problem. His connection with AA would be valuable, because the fellowship stood high in public favor and hadn't an enemy in the world. Soon, they'd spotted our man, an AA with the necessary experience. Straight away, he appeared at the New York's AA headquarters, asking, Is there anything in our tradition that suggests I shouldn't take a job like this one? The kind of education seems good to me and is not too controversial. Do you headquarters folks see any bugs in it? At first glance, it did look like a good thing. Then doubt crept in. The association wanted to use our member's full name in all its advertising. He was to be described both as its director of publicity and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of course, there couldn't be the slightest objection if such an association hired an, an AA member slowly because, solely because of his public relations ability and his knowledge of alcoholism. But that wasn't the whole story, for in this case, not only was an AA member to break his anonymity at a public level, he was to link the name Alcoholics Anonymous to his particular educational projects in the minds of millions. It would be bound to appear that AA was now backing education, liquor trade association style. I think, yeah, I mean, this is really healthy I, in, in most cases. I think the anonymity thing is got like really going to have to just have to be adjusted and adapted. You know, I think it's important that some people say they're members of AA. I think it's helpful and, and uh, intuitive to do that in a way that shows that they aren't like the spearhead or speaking point of AA. But uh, in this case, yeah, I'm glad that this happened this way. Now, they did make a movie about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know how that went. I know a lot of people were upset about it with uh, James Woods. If anybody's interested, they should definitely check that out. But I can only imagine how many things would have been just slapped with the AA logo and just completely watered down every aspect of this program. The minute we saw this compromising fact for what it was, we asked the pr uh, prospective publicity director how he felt about it. Great guns, he thought. Of course, I can't take the job. The ink wouldn't be dry on the first ad before an awful shriek would go up from the dry camp. They'd be out with landers looking for an honest AA to plump for their brand of education. AA would land exactly, exactly in the middle of a wet-dry controversy. <laughs> half the people in this country would think we'd signed up with the dries. The other half would think we'd joined the wets. What a mess. What a weird fucking breakdown that was. Nevertheless, we'd pointed out, you still have a legal right to take this job. I know that, he said, but this is no time for legalities. Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life, and it comes first. I certainly won't be the guy to land AA in big-time trouble, and this would really do it. Concerning endorsements, our friend had said it all. We saw, as never before, that we could not lend the AA name to any other cause other than our own. And yeah, I agree. I think the uh, that was a smart move. You know, honestly, if they'd have, if they'd have sold this brand or sold it as a brand, there's no way it would have survived. No way at all. So that's it. That's step six, tradition six. I think the least controversial of some of the steps and, and traditions in here, uh, despite there being God, God stuff in both. I, I do think that step six is one of the ones that I really enjoy just for the aspect of losing your attachment to 
you know, things within. I think that's a very healthy thing. It's a very difficult thing, but it has so much to do with personal growth and is something that exists outside of AA, which, you know, makes AA have a little bit of credibility to me. Um, more credibility, I guess. Uh, so that's that. Um, again, my, my, my socials, I, if you want to reach out to me directly at all, Facebook, you can reach me at an atheist reads the big book of AA. Uh, you can, you can like that page and then use that as a, a way to message me directly. I don't do a great job of promoting this through other socials. I am not very good at that. I want to get better at that, but it's just not something that I have the attention span for. And, and so I'm not going to make any promises there. Uh, but you can also reach me directly at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. Uh, these are both ways that you can reach out to me, talk to me. And, you know, if you want to tell me how the show is going, you want to tell me about anything that maybe has impacted you, uh, in a positive way or even a negative way, you know, if I'm saying stuff that's out of pocket or if I'm saying things that, uh, you feel might be harmful, please reach out. You know, I'd love to have that discussion. Uh, if you are, you know, if you've got some, some literature you think I should check out, uh, pamphlets or otherwise, you know, definitely do that as well. But for now, I really appreciate everybody that's continued to listen and thank you for keeping me sober one more day. Mm-hmm.